Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. I've been thinking lately a lot about mentors. It started at my son's graduation. He had several professors that were nothing less than transformative. We can all think back to a person whose words or actions helped us. Often, they were a professional educator. But no one is completely disqualified from being a mentor to someone else. My guest today knows the power of mentorship. She has been both the beneficiary and the benefactor of mentorship. We are all the better for this. Prepare to see how small acts of kindness result in tremendous returns. Next on Sound Practice. Kathleen Newsel is the Myron M. Levine Professor of Vaccinology, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics, and Director of the Center for Vaccine Development and Global Health at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Newsel is contributing author to Lessons Learned Stories from Women Physician Leaders. Kathleen Newsel, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, as you know, this is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership, and I'm interested in your path as a physician leader. Can you give me an overview? Sure. Um, you know, nobody in my family was in, in medicine. There were certainly no physicians in my family, no nurses, no others. And really, it was my interest in, in science that, that sent me to medical school. I, I was quite fortunate to land it at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, which really prides themselves on training future leaders in medicine. And I can tell you as a 22-year-old, I didn't have much of an idea of, of what that meant, um, but again, was certainly surrounded by many inspirational people. And I think that theme has just continued through my career. Um, you know, I was able to train at some very top institutions, Vanderbilt University, the University of Washington, and again, continuously inspired and, and challenged by, by others that I worked with. In your chapter in Lessons Learned, you give much thanks and appreciation to your mentors. Most people describe mentors in their professional career, but I was interested to see the first mentor you mentioned was a high school teacher. Who was the high school teacher and what did he or she help you think about? Yeah, I think there are maybe a few answers to that. And, and perhaps I may have described it in the singular, but I'm sure there's more than one. Um, certainly it was my biology teacher, you know, who uh, in, inspired me to be interested in science. And I would say also challenged us um, very specifically. I, I went to an all girls school and it was true back when I was in school that there was not as much emphasis on science and math in the girls' schools as in the boys' schools. For example, if you wanted to take calculus, you had to go to the boys' school to take calculus. It wasn't offered at, at my school. So, so certainly um, my, my biology teacher, who was Sister Irene, and I would also say my principal, um, Sister Ann Magner, who, who really said that, um, Kathy, why don't, why don't you think a little higher here? You know, you, you have potential, um, 
you know, you don't need to to follow what then was a traditional path and just really encouraged me to apply to colleges and, and medical schools more broadly and to, again, push myself in a way that I would not have even had the awareness that some of these opportunities were there. Well, well, how nice. What makes for a good mentor? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I, I think it's somebody who certainly models a behavior that you strive for. And so when I think about my mentors, I absolutely think of them as role models. And you're pointing to some aspect of them and saying, I want to be like him or her. It, it may not be every part, right? You're not trying to clone that person and become that person. But there's some aspect that resonates with you you know, whether it's their leadership skills, their scientific skills. For me, it was many women early on who balanced a family and a really successful career that was um, allowed them to be a role model for me. And then I think it's somebody who who cares and and puts your needs as a as a priority. That you know, simple things they may you ask them to read something or to comment on something and they get back to you quickly. You know, they, they are giving you advice that benefits you. Most of the time it may also benefit them, but, but when it doesn't, they can step back. They can look at it from your perspective and again, give you the best advice. And then perhaps another really important characteristic for me were mentors who gave me opportunities or introduced me to people, right? Said, I need to connect you with this person. So recognize that they're not the end all and be all um, for my career. And, and again, helped me network and find others who could, could complement their own mentorship. Excellent. In your chapter in Lessons Learned, you write as a young girl of reading biographies of famous uh, women. I think role models and heroes are important. In the time of cancel culture, should I be concerned? Yeah, I'm not sure that I can get that profound. Um, role models are important. Fair enough, fair enough. What worries me a little bit about today, and whether it's it's cancel culture or another word for it, is we know so much about everyone and even some of my role models, you know, you find out that they were imperfect humans and, and we're all imperfect humans. But again, I, I was reading biographies from, from first grade. You know, in first grade, I just wanted to believe that Clara Barton and, and Abigail Adams were, were doing the right thing. And if they were flawed humans, I'm not sure I could grasp that at that, that time anyway. So again, as we get older, um, you know, perhaps um, we realize that, that again, some of our heroes were flawed, but in the same way that with our personal mentors, um, you know, they're, they're, they're people, they're aspects that can still inspire us. And, you know, I feel, I still think it's important to have those role models. Definitely. Lessons Learned looks at women in, in medicine. How has the profession of medicine changed, if at all, for women during your career? 
Yeah, I think it's changed tremendously. Again, when I was in medical school, we had a pretty good number of women, actually. We had about a third in the class for that were women who were women. There were still, um, you know, many subspecialties for which there, there weren't a lot of women. You know, now in at our medical school here at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and others, more than 50% are women. So just the sheer numbers have changed dramatically in a relatively short period of time. Now, there, there are still rooms and committees that I'm on where, you know, you may be the only woman in a, in a, a leadership position, but we are definitely seeing more and more, you know, deans of medical schools, chairman of departments, women leaders as well. Again, a little catching up to do there, but just the sheer numbers have dramatically changed during my career. You described in your writing that uh, the time in a female academician's uh, career when she has young children is, uh, quote, one of the most tenuous times for female faculty. Um, is this changing? You know, I would like to say it is changing. However, I believe the COVID-19 pandemic set us back. And I say that because as difficult as it was for me, you know, with three young children and, and trying to keep up with academics, when you put on top of that, what some of these both young mothers and fathers went through in these last three years where, you know, schools were closing, daycares were closing, um, they're, they're trying to juggle working from home and, and children and remote learning. And um, I, I think we took a big step back during COVID-19 and we have to recognize that the stress and the pressures on young parents were really tremendous. So I, I think we need to claw our way back out of that a, a, a bit. And again, I, I think it is is still stressful, um, but but hopefully we can continue to make progress. Good, good. I'm interested in leadership and business practices that you learned while you worked at at, at Path. You, you indicate that these were not skills or things that came to you through an academic environment. And so, could you talk about the different employment? environments and how they impact leadership skills? Sure. And again, there may be people in academics who gain these leadership skills in, in different ways, but I think there, there are a number of important lessons and skills that I learned working for a not-for-profit for 10 years. You know, one is really how you're incentivized. And in academics, at least in the earlier part of our career, you know, we we have to prove our individual worth. We have to prove, um, you know, our, our scientific contributions in whatever way we might do that. And that may be through getting grants or, or publications. When I was at the not-for-profit, the incentivizing was different. It was collaboration. It was more team-based, right? And it was achieving a certain team-based public health goal. So again, the skills that you might use to get to those, what might be be similar, but but different pathways to, to get there, I, I believe are important. So 
when I moved to the global health not-for-profit, it was the first time that I had had formal leadership training. Again, this is done more commonly now in academics, but, but wasn't done earlier in, in my career where I actually sat down with professionals and a group of professionals, you know, and, and learned um, techniques, learned how to approach difficult situations, you know, um, how maybe to to give feedback that that is not easy to give, how to deal with it's it's rare, but but how to deal with the, the difficult employee. Um, so so yes, there were were a number of skills and a number of ways that I learned those skills that were different in the nonprofit world. Very interesting. I think people would be fascinated to know a little bit about your service at the at the nonprofit organization PATH. Could you just give us a 30,000 foot view? Sure. Um, PATH is a global health not-for-profit and and I worked in the, the vaccine group. So, so our goal was to accelerate the introduction of vaccines in low resource countries. And it was really a a wonderful decade of my life where I felt like I could take the scientific, the trial design, the clinical and policy skills that I had learned in academics and apply those to broader populations and apply those specifically to populations in low resource countries. And again, it was putting the science in the context of the larger public public health goals. So we still had to do rigorous science, but you learn that just proving a vaccine works or just developing a vaccine isn't enough. We need to be able to communicate the benefits of that vaccine. We need to be able to generate political will. We need, and we all learned this the hard way many times, we need to, to have a business case for that vaccine and a market for that vaccine, right? If, if countries can't afford it, they're not gonna use it. If the use isn't sustainable, then a manufacturer isn't going to make it. So all of these other aspects that surrounded the science of vaccinology, which was really my focus in academics, were part of the broader perspective at PATH. Very interesting. And your answer just brought up the political dimension to vaccines. And I think few would argue that there is a political dimension to, to vaccines, both recently and going back a number of years. We don't really see that in other areas of medicine. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And as you've said, we've we could give examples through decades. You can go back to the original, you know, smallpox vaccines a, a hundred or more years ago. And there have been cases that went all the way to the Supreme Court testing the individual rights of of my being able to get or refuse a vaccine versus you know, the public health mandate that we have an outbreak of a very deadly disease. That is not new. I think what is new is the pervasiveness of it right right now is what's really changed. You know, it used to be a, a minority, but um, in the 50s and 60s, you know, we had moms and, and parents lining up with their children because we finally had a polio vaccine and 
children weren't going to be paralyzed by swimming at the public pool in the summer. You know, we finally had a measles vaccine, a, a very deadly and still one of the deadliest infectious diseases known. And um, again, except for a, a small minority, vaccines were seen as, as very positive. So again, the pervasiveness of it, the, the number of people um, with, with doubts about vaccines has increased over time, which to me is a great irony because we know so much more about the science now than we did 50 years ago. You know, we know precisely how these vaccines are working, precisely the, the immune response to these vaccines. We can measure safety and adverse events to the one per million metric. Um, so it's it's really we should have more confidence in vaccines right now, and yet we're seeing the opposite. Um, you brought up historically, I think you mentioned smallpox, and I live in a small town in Indiana. In the early 1850s, residents were required to be vaccinated for smallpox, lest they be expelled or jailed, right? Um, so... Can you imagine a scenario where such a mandate is possible today? And does this really mean that medicine is a victim of its own success? Yeah, I think there are, are two aspects of that. Um, you know, it, it's we have medical professionals and the Centers for Disease Control who who recommend vaccination. And then it's really at the state level how you require and enforce that vaccination. So while I can't comment on, on 1850s Indiana, you know, school laws, for example, are set and enforced at, at the state level, not by medical professionals. And again, it's this attempt at balance between, you know, the individual rights, but also recognizing that there are parents of five-year-olds with cancer and they're not going to respond to that vaccine. And if we can surround them with other five-year-olds at recess who are vaccinated, you know, we are going to protect that vulnerable child. And we can give many, many examples of this. You know, an infant is another example. When we all go to visit infants, when we go to visit people in, in nursing homes, we do have some obligation um, to them and, and to protect them. So, so no, I, I can't imagine um, people currently being, being thrown in, in jail, but it is this idea of, you know, what obligation do I have to my, my fellow community here to keep them safe in the same way that I stop at a red light, even if it's at two in the morning. So um, again, it, it's that, it's that obligation to community, in my opinion. And so do you think that this is a communication issue more than a science issue when it comes to the politicalization of uh, vaccines? I think part of it's communication. I think part of it is it's become a political issue, which, again, is probably what's most disappointing and upsetting to me personally, that if we think back of other outbreaks in history, it's been really when politicians have come together <laughs> to support a, a similar cause. I don't understand why it's, it's political, but unfortunately be, it's become more political. And then I think it's a function of social media. 
you know, if you Google vaccine, your your top 10 hits may be something horrible, right? And and but absolutely not reliable sources. So I think we in medicine and vaccinology haven't kept up with communications to your point about communications. And it's not just, you know, me standing there uh, as a physician saying everybody should do this, but recognizing that people's sources of information have changed dramatically. All of that being said, if you look at studies, you're always again gonna have a minority of people that you're not gonna change their mind. Sure. But people will still listen to their trusted source. So their own personal health care provider. Um, if you've ever heard, um, progress moves at the speed of trust. And I think that's similar for vaccination and public health programs. Um, you know, we the faster we want to move, the more trust uh, we we have to engender. Excellent point. Well, as our time together comes to an end, I'm interested in what's next for you. What projects are you working on? Yeah, I'm working on a, a, a lot of different projects. I do want to make the the statement that, you know, I was talking about how much I loved working for the global health not-for-profit, and I'm really very, very fortunate that even though I've moved back in academics that I'm still able to work um, with many of the low resource communities. We're currently working on a big typhoid vaccine project, you know, to try to get that vaccine out there. But really my motivation for moving back was, um, this is where you are going to mentor people. You are going to mentor people in an academic center. And, and while we each, we all mentor people all our lives. It really is concentrated. The common denominator for any of us in this field is we must go through our academic training phase. And then we may go off to a not-for-profit or we may go off to you know a pharmaceutical company and, and that's great. But I really had such great mentors that, that a big part of, of my job and at this phase in my career, you know, I really want to help that next generation of leaders and ensure again that, that maybe those women that are feeling a little bit vulnerable because it's been a bad week at home, you know, either have a role model or a little extra help that, that can get them through because we want these people as, as leaders and, and we need these, these people as leaders. My guest has been Dr. Kathleen Newsel. Dr. Newsel, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for ha having me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Dr. Kathleen Newsel. Her professional work has benefited countless people globally. Her story should encourage all to mentor others. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. 
Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Pat is holy cow. Batman and Robin. Rip Kapow.